Good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to see uh, each of you and uh, appreciate your work and your effort. I know that we didn't go through uh, this morning and uh, look at all of those on our, our prayer list, but when uh, Joe and I were recording for Facebook last night, uh, in his announcements, he went through that whole list, and I was sitting there. Our, in the last six weeks, our list has grown tremendously of individuals that need our prayers. And you add to that the number of people who are anxious and maybe even discouraged uh, to the point of giving up during a time of such uncertainty and instability in our world. Um, I hope that you're praying, and I hope that you're praying for your church family on a regular basis. We need it. Uh, you need it. I need it. Um, those who are assembling at the 11 o'clock hour need it and uh, certainly long for the time that we can all be back together in one room under one roof uh, worshiping God together. You know, the art or the idea of repurposing items for different use has become a, a full-fledged moneymaker in, in 2020. What used to be a, an item on a honeydew list has become a, 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 an industry of being able to take a discarded wooden pallet and make out of it home decor. Now, I'm amazed at the talent and the ability and the vision that people have in repurposing those things. But, it, but it's become something that, that, that people invest in, they take time in, they make shows about. Maybe in your time in, in quarantine you have watched some of those and gotten these grand ideas. If you've ever actually tried to implement What's done, you, you, you may have fallen short of, of what the intention was in the beginning, but it is something that, that, that drives a lot of people today, and, and we sometimes take from that, that that idea of repurposing, and I only mention it for this reason, and, and we draw a spiritual analogy for what God has done for us. That is, that, that he's taken people who've been discarded, who've been discredited, who ha- seemingly had no value, and found for them a place to thrive. Now, I do want to make it clear that, that every analogy, every illustration, every, even every parable that Jesus told had limits on its application. Okay, there's not a, you can't have a, a, a complete application of that. And here's the reason I say that. Because God hasn't repurposed us for anything. Now, he's rescued us. He's redeemed us. He's restored us. He hasn't repurposed us. What we find in Christ, we find in the Lord's church to be is actually what God intended for us to be from the beginning. He's not taking us and making us something different. Now, we turn our attention this morning in the middle of the month to our theme for May. And that theme is exalted above the hills. The language is taken from our text this morning that will serve as, as our foundation, not only for today, but for the rest of this month together as we consider uh, lessons about the exalted nature of the Lord's church. And the reason I use the, the repurposing illustration is that in our world, the church has gone through that makeover process, that repurposing process. Whereas there, were, there was a time, and maybe even in the minds of some people even still, in fact, not maybe, it is, that the, that the church is a discarded, unnecessary, sort of used up concept. That, that man's gotten as much out of as he can get, and so it, it's been rejected, and out of the ash heap of rejection... Men have come along and repurposed it. They, they've made it as something that, that, it, that it wasn't or God didn't intend it for it to be. Let me just illustrate that or define that. The idea that organized religion 
has run its course is a very common thought in the minds of people. And, and, and so like a wooden pallet that would be, shipping pallet that would be just discarded, the church has been laid aside in search of and longing for a, 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 a newer or fresher or maybe even more authentic way of looking at Christianity. You take the perverted teachings that have cropped up over the years, the denominational divisions that exist in our religious world, even the arrogance that truth is held by some people, and all of that added together and people say, I don't want anything to do with that. And so there are creative visionaries that look into that, that, that trash pile, if you will, and say, hey, I can make something out of this. Community and fellowship appeals to people, right? We've missed it. We, people want to be together. They want a group to belong to. So I can take that and I can make something out of it that's, that's usable. I can repurpose that concept, and so our world has. And so the church has become a social gathering. It's become a, a benevolent, simply a benevolent organization. It's become an option or a preference or a family tradition, a, a spiritual lions club. And in some sense, it does good in that fashion. But friends, that's not God's original intention. That's not why God created it. That's not why he founded it. That's not why he's blessed it and protected it. The church is something different. And what I want us to do this morning for just a few minutes is I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 in prophecy about what the church was going to be when it came. And because of that, because God stands outside of time, it still serves as the purpose of the church today. And it's not up to us to rebrand it or repurpose it, but rather to restore and to go back to being in the church and I don't mean by that this morning a, a worldwide restoration. I mean, make sure we are here. That, that's our first and chief concern. Are we here, the people that God wants us to be prophetically? Are we following the, this plan? Let's read the text together, and then we'll give some thoughts. Now it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains, and be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come out and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us of, uh, concerning his ways, and we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and we will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Those, those words were written anywhere between seven and 800 years before the coming of Christ and so be, before the, the, coming of the, the coming of the church. And yet, God said, when I establish my house, here it is. This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be for. This is the purpose. Now, you can't in this section identify what it looks like in, in, the, in the modern sense as far as the church building and location and, and even the, the, the layout of the auditorium, but you can find what God's people are supposed to be. And that's the purpose that we should cling to. And before we look at those things, I think there, there are four concepts in those, in those verses that, that should stand out to us as the purpose of the church. Before we look at that, though, I think it's interesting to note where this prophecy is given and to whom it's given. We've been talking about this morning about repurposing and understanding true purpose and, and what God has intended. The, this book was written to a people who had originally a powerful purpose in God's plan. Didn't they? I mean, this is the nation of Israel. These are God's chosen people. Called back in the time of Abraham, really. 
and told, I'm going to make you this nation, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless all of the earth through you. Now, the promise there is about Jesus, but it's also about the rise of the nation of Israel and God's protective hand over them. But they've come a long way and fallen a long way from the promise of Abraham until the book of Isaiah, haven't they? They've, they've, they've exited the, the land of Egypt. They've been given the law at Sinai. They've, they've conquered the land. They've lived in the land. They've been given a king in a, in a sense of a united kingdom with Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom was split. You're talking about years and years and decades and decades of history and layer upon layer upon layer of disobedience and of misunderstanding and of rejection and of punishment and oppression. You suppose that at the time of the writing of the book of Isaiah that God's people had forgotten their purpose, their role in all of this? He opens the book in, in verse one by, or in verse 4 of chapter 1 by telling them, you are a people laden or overcome or burdened down with iniquity. He tells them in, in chapter 59 and verse 2 that, that a wall of separation had gone up between them and Jehovah that their sins wouldn't allow God to respond to them until they took the sin away. This, were, this was a people who had forgotten why. They weren't created to be the end all, but they were created to be the conduits of grace, the family through which Jesus came, the nation that he would rise from. They were instrumental and foundational in this plan that we're talking about for the church. There's a good chance they had forgotten that because that's what sin does to us. It blinds us to what our true purpose is. It robs us of our place in, in God's plan. And so in, in, a, in a book, if you read it, that's really about judgment and about condemnation and about punishment and about captivity, you, you have littered throughout the entire thing these, these glimmers of hope and sometimes bursting forth with power saying, listen, I've still got a plan in mind. You're still important. Captivity's coming, but the remnant's coming back. There's going to come one that's going to prepare the way of the Lord, and then the suffering servant of chapter 53 is going to show up, and he's going to die for your sins. You still have a purpose. You still have a role to fulfill. Now, it's to those people who had maybe questioned or even just flat out forgotten their purpose, he writes these words about the purpose of what he's going to do later on. And that's where you and I come in. A people that maybe, along the way, like the Israel of old, have forgotten our purpose, miscalculated it, maybe overlooked it. It may not be because of the depths of sin that we're in, but it could be. Maybe it's because of six weeks of not gathering together as a congregation. Can you forget something in six weeks? Can you lose something like that in, in, in a month and a half? Absolutely. But maybe if we've lost our purpose, it wasn't because of the last six weeks. Maybe the last six weeks has actually helped to refocus us, to realize that we're not confined to a building, we're not de determined by a location, that, that, that our service to God is daily. Whatever we might struggle with, I hope that we can see from this text this morning four unique thoughts about the purpose the exalted purpose of God's church. Number one, we note its position. It has an exalted position. It says that I will establish the mountain of the Lord, that it will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills. Now, there is obviously a geographic concept being discussed here in, in prophecy. Usually when we go to Isaiah 2, 
if, if you've studied the, the prophecies of the Old Testament looking forward to the church, we use Isaiah 2 to determine when and where the church would begin, right? In the last days in the city of Jerusalem. There's more to this text, by the way, than just the, the, the when and, 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 and the, the, the where of the establishment of the church. But that's sort of in, 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 entrenched in this geographic statement. See, Jerusalem was built or is built on the top of seven mountain peaks, seven high hills. And so when the, when the writers would write geographically about Jerusalem, they would always write about going up. didn't matter if you were coming from the north or you were coming from the south. You were always going up to Jerusalem because it was in the top of the mountains. And so there's geography there in this consideration. We, we, we identify the place of, of the Lord's church being established. But friends, I believe there's theology in that statement as well, not just geography. There's a spiritual exaltation that the church enjoys. Now, it may not be the exalted place and, and position on the earth. But there, are, there are churches made by men who have more members, that have more popularity, that have more money, that maybe even in, in, in a sense of, of benevolence do a, a, have a greater reach and, 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 and flow to them. But the, theologically, spiritually, the church is exalted above the hills. And when you look at that concept in Scripture about the things that happened on the tops of the mountains and on the hills, there's some amazing things as you look through. The law was given at Mount Sinai, right? Going up to meet with God. I know it's, it's, it's a physical image that we get, but, it, but it's to remind us. Jesus was, was transfigured on a high mountain, Matthew chapter 17. Even, even those things that weren't necessarily hills or, or mountains, but were high hills, were described as mountains, I believe, for a theological purpose. The Sermon on the Mount, probably just a high hill in that, in that region. Mount Calvary we sing about. It's not a, a, a literal mountain, but, but a high hill that, that people could see from a great distance. And that's the idea that the church is exalted in the mind and heart of God, and it should be exalted in the minds of hearts those who are a part of it. Friends, this is not just something else about our spiritual life. This is where it all comes together. I'm not negating or, or undermining our daily service to God and, and our family devotional time and our, and our individual activity. But when God saved us, he put us here. Collectively, as his body, he made us into his church. And he's exalted us above the hills. We should think the same way about ourselves. We're not people who have no power and no resources because of our minimal influence in the world. We are God's chosen people. And with a humility that should ring true in every statement and every activity we do, even with that humility, we should boldly say we've been exalted above the hills. The purpose for the Lord's church was exaltation, location. Number two, there would be an attraction to the church that Jesus would build. The nations would say... Come and let us go. In fact, the nations would, New American Standard, stream unto it. New King James, flow unto it. There would be an attraction. People would want to be there. They would want to be a part. They would want to see what's going on. It wasn't just about curiosity, and it certainly wasn't about animosity. Now, to make application from this, we could easily go to Acts 2 when the church was established and point out that Acts 2.5 says there were devout Jews out of every nation under heaven gathered there that day. 
So much so that the apostles would need to speak in foreign tongues so that everyone could understand what they were saying because they didn't even all speak the same language. Even from the beginning of the church, all nations were gathered in. Furthermore, when the marching orders of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 were given, they knew they were to start in Jerusalem and expand out. Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. Why? Because the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, would include all nations. And so as they went out, people would come to them and all nations would flow to it and the church would be built up not just of one nationality or one race or one generation, but of all. Friends, I believe there's more in this statement than just the multicultural makeup of the church. It doesn't just say, as for example Daniel 2 says, that it will consume all the nations of the earth, but rather that they will want to be there. Like a stream that flows by, with gravity and time, people will naturally want to be there. I think in this, this, con, in this concept, in this description, we ought to be reminded of Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount when he said that a city set on a hill cannot be hid, but if they see our good works, they'll glorify God. You see, our exalted position that God has put us in gives us the ability to be watched and to be seen and to be scrutinized and to be viewed. And when we are, what they should see is a people they want to be a part of. And they will flow there. They will flock there, we might say, to be a part. Sometimes we lament the inability that we have in certain places for evangelism. No one wants to hear anymore, we might say. You know, that might be true. But you know what they do want? They want to see. You know what happens when they see? They'll want to be. It's just the way it is. That's the way it's described. All nations will flow. They will stream. They will say, let's go there. Again, not about a specific location, but about a people who live in, a, in community and, and involve themselves in a workforce and, and, and in, in school systems, and, and they see difference. They see the glory of God through us. The Lord's church intended and purposed his people to be attractive. And then he purposed the church, number three, to be a place of instruction. It, it was a place that held a position of exaltation, a place that had an attraction, and also a place that had instruction. Did you notice the language, of, particularly in verse 3, how that the law would go forth, the word would go forth, and we would be taught in the church? You can't distance the church from its doctrine and its teaching. It's inherent in who we are. In fact, if it's not, we're missing something, not, not only that, that, it's, that it's come to be an identifying mark, but what God purposed to be an identifying mark. It's not our doctrine, right? It's not our teaching. So I don't have the right to, to, to preach my opinion, and if I ever insert it, I need to say clearly, I just think here, but God has spoken on this matter. We need to be careful in that. Our doctrine then needs to be consistent. It needs to be true. It needs to be right. It needs to be biblical. Now, some have taken this in our religious world at large and, and made this more than it should be, however. You know, some are turned away by discussion of doctrine because for hundreds of years the idea was that the church determined doctrine. That God gave his word, but you couldn't really understand it, and so it would take the, the clergy to come along and read it and give it to you and, and share it with you, and, and, and the church then became the determiners of truth. They would interpret and you would believe. You know what? I could leave. You could open your Bible. You could read Isaiah 2. You could get the same thing out of Isaiah 2 that I would give you in this sermon. 
Because the church doesn't control doctrine. That's why we're careful when someone asks a question like, what does the Church of Christ believe or teach about this? And our, our answer, politely but kindly, usually is something like this. The Church of Christ doesn't teach anything, but the Bible teaches something, and we try to stay with what the Bible says. It's, it's just maybe a, a, just a, a moment of clarity for people. It may be unnecessary for others. Friends, we don't control truth. The church, 1 Timothy 3.15, is the pillar and ground, the support and defense of truth. It's not the determinant of truth. God is. And he's revealed it. And his church will reflect that. There's an instruction in the Lord's church. And then number four, finally, and try to stay on task of at least a loose time assignment this month. Lord's church had a purpose of reconciliation. I don't know, verse 4 might be an allusion to the end of all things with the church. God established the church, puts it in the world, delivers it up to the, to the Father, and then every enemy is defeated and, and glory is ushered in. Maybe verse 4 is about the end of time when there's no more war. But I believe there's a direct application of that when it comes to how the church functions even in a world where there is war. Friends, there's, there's war in our world. There have been very few years in the history of mankind, modern mankind, there hasn't been some type of conflict in our world. There have been very few years in the history of our nation that we haven't been engaged. Now, we don't sit on our, our own soil, and so we don't think about it sometimes, but our, our military is engaged in conflict worldwide. We're a warring people. I don't mean the United States. I mean the people in general. We, we fight. James 4 talks about it. You bite and devour because you have lust and you you need things and you want things and you want to defend things. And so you fight. The Lord's church should be a place that's different. Do you notice in verse 4 they were taking their instruments of war and turning them into instruments of agriculture? Because they wouldn't need them anymore. You know, a a man in that day who could plow his field without need to stand guard, was a man who lived at peace. He wasn't worried about a neighboring nation or a warring faction or a rebellious overthrow of, of, an, of a rival kingdom. He could just go farm, just go plant, just go live and be all right. That's really what it ought to be in the church. The, the, the pettiness and the anger and the backbiting and the isolation that the world uses to control and manipulate and gain power has no place in God's people, period. We're a people at peace because reconciliation has been made. Now, I know that there are statements that talk about we live at peace where we can and, and the offenses are going to come, but do we understand that Jesus at the cross defeated our greatest enemy in Satan? And at the end of time, he'll defeat our last enemy in death. And in between the two great victories, what he asks for us to do is live in peace with one another. And we act as if it's impossible sometimes. See, so that's the, the unique thing about finding the purpose of the church. Is we look at something like Isaiah chapter 2 and we find the purpose of the church, we do it sometimes so that we can identify that we are and someone else isn't. Okay? I found the church and I'm a part of it and you need to become a part of it and those conversations need to be had. But if finding the true purpose of the Lord's church doesn't change our behavior on Monday, we've missed why God gave us the true purpose of the church to begin with. If we can't understand and can't see that that being a part of the church gives us a responsibility and a purpose in life, 
to live and not just believe. To act and not just preach. To seek peace, not just long for it in the future. To be a people of reconciliation and of instruction so that people will be attracted to where we are. Friends, if we have nothing to say and we have nothing to live, there's no attraction that's coming and there's no exalted position that we obtain. In fact, what we are, we become a, an organization among organizations level with everyone else. And we cheat God of the purpose for which he created the church and saved us in Christ. I said this last week, but I'll say it again. As a lookout in the assembly this morning, the majority of us have obeyed the gospel. And there might be someone questioning their salvation this morning, and we don't want to minimize that or dismiss it. And so as we sing an invitation song in just a moment, it's open for you if you have questions about where you stand with the Lord. If you've never been baptized, if you haven't questioned that, we would love to study with you about that process. But more than not, what we have gathered together are people this morning who've been saved for a purpose, not a repurpose. Who've been saved to be a part of an exalted community of believers that through its teaching and love for one another is attractive to the world. And if you haven't lived a life that invites that, I would ask that you revisit Isaiah 2 this afternoon. Make a commitment that tomorrow will be different. Perhaps in that journey you might need help. You might need prayers. You might need strength. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.